what would have happened? Yeah, I'd have been dead. Yeah. Really? Yeah. They, they told me that if I would have stayed two or three more days in Bellingham, I would have been dead. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. What happens on a family farm when the farmer is deathly ill? It's an incredibly dramatic story this week with an organic dairy farmer who was in the hospital earlier this year for more than two months with a very rare life-threatening condition. And he opens up and explains how this all happens, and then he goes on to explain how the farm kept going, how the community came together, and we talk about what his his farm is all about. Corby Groon is his name. Uh, he grew up in the same town as me. I actually didn't really know him at all until this conversation, other than just, you know, at a distance, like you know other people in a small town. So it was a lot of fun to get to hear what really makes him tick and why he does what he does, why he went organic, why that's so important to him, his vision of sustainability and, and what he's doing for wildlife. We talk about a lot of stuff. But most importantly, that dramatic story about the bizarre illness that almost took his life. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast, sharing stories like these, the real stories of the people who grow and produce our food here in Washington State. I'm Dylan Honkoop, the host. I grew up on a small family farm here in Washington, and now it's my mission to share the stories of people all over the state who grow the food that we put on our plates. farm shop yep the real deal the real deal i swept the floor but not much else <laughs> if you would have done more than that i would have been upset you okay. know that yeah well like I'm, all this stuff this is real farming right happening mm-hmm. around here yep. right yep just a messy farm shop <laughs> a dairy farmer shop yeah well Th- those are wor- that's worse than most farms <laughs> So what's going on in the shop right now? What are you working on? Um, I blew up my gearbox on my uh, 5409 New Idea bar mower. So <laughs> I got that rebuilt, but now I think I'm going to add another uh, module to it to make it you know, s- 10 inches longer. So it's becoming a bigger project than, than I originally thought. So Always modifying, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so how'd you, how'd you break it? Oh, a couple of bearings went out. Um, uh, there's a spur gear on the bottom and there's a bearing on a hex shaft on each side of the spur gear and they just went out and so you were out mowing and yep and all of a sudden it got quite loud and <laughs> yeah time to go to the shop yeah and then went and borrowed the neighbor's mower to finish up so. yeah 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 good thing for neighbors right? yeah that's right so you almost died yeah how did that happen what, what what's the backstory here what was actually going on well, it's kind of a blur, especially the beginning of it. Um, yeah. I guess back in would have been February, I just got what I thought was a cold and had a five-day fever. And that's usually not like me. If I get sick, it's usually one or two days and I'm back at it. And I just, I mean, it was to the point where I didn't even want to leave the house. Like I couldn't leave the house and come out to the barn. And that's usually pretty bad. That's real sick. Yeah. And... After that, I was feeling really fatigued, you know, the following week and yeah. the following close to a month. Um, I was compl- my wife said I was complaining. I was, you know, I'm just like, I am tired, you know, and everything, the whole day just seemed to kind of be a blur. I just didn't feel right. And um, 
then I started getting these um, bruises on my shins and they got really itchy. And I started getting some other rashes and went to the doctor and yeah. I kept, I had told a buddy of mine too, I said, something's not, something's not right with my body. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Hope it's not, you know, cancer or something, you know? Right. So I went into Linden Family Medicine and, and they kind of told me, uh, so we think you're having some sort of allergic reaction. Um, so they put me on a low dose of prednisone for about a week and it didn't do anything. Um, and I just kind of, I think about 10 days later, I started having stomach problems. I started having digestive issues, and that continued for about a week. Mm -hmm. um, then the, I went back to the doctor, and he said, well, let's just take some blood. He didn't think it was anything serious, and so we took some blood. He called me that night, and he said, your platelets are dangerously low. And these are things I don't know anything about, right? right? So I's like, well, right. what are my platelets? Yeah, what, what's that mean? Yeah, I'm not exactly a doctor, but so it's... Um, there's cells in your, in your blood that help your blood clot. So I think I was at 20,000, which you're supposed to be above like 80 to 150. And so it was pretty dangerously low, but he told me he thought it was maybe a lab error. So he told me, come back in for blood. So that night, my wife and I went in, it's like six o'clock. And I was, I had milked my cows that night and I like every, my kids milked with me, but I was pretty unproductive. Like Every step I took, my stomach hurt, like mm. every step. And we did the blood test and we got out of there, you know, lab results won't be back till the next day. And I just told my wife, I'm like, just take me to the ER. I, I don't feel good. And so got down to the ER. Um, they admitted me right away. Um, it was kind of nice because it wasn't busy because of COVID. Everybody's scared right. of the ER, right? So you don't have any Nobody was nicks around. and cuts. And so got right in and it was kind of a blur at that point. They diagnosed me with like three or four things and they kept changing the diagnosis. And then they did a CAT scan and um, I had a life-threatening blood clot um, in my a portal vein that goes to my stomach and intestines. I don't know the technical word, but mm -hmm. um, so they put me on um, heparin right away, which is a blood thinner and started me on uh, warfarin. And I started to feel quite a bit better they also put me on prednisone again. Mm -hmm. And I started to feel quite a bit better. I was eating, was in pretty good spirits. They were worried about leukemia. So they had to do, uh, they took a bone marrow, can't remember, sample or whatever. Yeah. So they had to stick the... I remember my bro they worried that my brother, he just had a virus, but they thought at one point it was leukemia when he right. was a kid. That was a really painful yeah. test, if I recall. Yeah, it was kind of funny because I knew I was probably going to say something pretty bad when... <laughs> Because they're telling me how painful it is, yeah. right? So I just, you know, they jab a needle in your butt, basically. Yeah, and, and take a drill, chunk of your bone, drew through your drill through your hip, and so I planned out what I was going to say, and I just yelled Kelly Clarkson when it went through, like <laughs> you know, like the the movie, and everybody just started dying laughing. So that kind of took the edge off, but yeah, it was pretty painful, and everything came back good there. You have and, to forgive me, I'm blanking. What movie is that again? Forty Year Old Virgin. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. When he's getting the waxing Yeah, the done. chest wax. Yeah, yeah, Kelly Clarkson. So I yelled yeah. Kelly Clarkson, and then I, you know, they had a hard time getting through my bone, and I told them that's because I've drinking a lot of milk in my life, so. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, we had some fun with it, but I was feeling pretty good at that point. They sent me home. I was extremely tired, but feeling pretty good, and I had to give myself a blood thinner shot in my stomach every night and kind of laid around for a couple weeks. And after about a, a couple weeks, I started feeling good, and yeah. I was out pumping manure out on the fields and stuff 
And then one day I um, started having stomach cramps and I thought, ah, well, I just had too much Mexican food, right? Right. And, but it started doing the same. Same thing that it same was before. Thing. And I was doing weekly blood, uh, blood tests and my platelets were still low. They were like at 80,000. So they'd come up, but, right. um, and the doctor, the hematologist was kind of like, well, your body's just recovering, you know, right. just give it some time. And so I went into the ER, I think three times. You have to ask Sheesh. my wife. I can't, I can't remember. She remembers it better than I do, but I know I went on Easter, um, afternoon, um, and they just kept sending me home. And so I think that, and you're feeling like something's not right yeah. here. Like, come on, let's figure this out. Yeah. And I, yeah, I'm, I told them I'm not like one of these ER frequent flyers, right? Like, so, <laughs> yeah. um, I think the fourth time I went in, there was a guy named, what was his name? He was from, um, I can't remember what country he was from, but he was my lobotomist. He'd been taking my blood twice a day before. And we had kind of, he had actually, Costa Rica. So he grew up on a farm in Costa Rica. Okay, so yeah. we were talking cows and they milk like 30 cows by hand. And so we kind of, he took my blood every day or at least yeah. one of the two times. Yeah. And he came in my ER room and he's like, what are you doing here again? And I'm like, I, they won't admit me. And he's like, we'll get you admitted. And he went and talked to somebody and they admitted me. So he knows if he has a background of dairy farming. Yeah. He knows that dairy farmer yeah, is, not, is not messing around if he's coming back to the ER every right. day. So he... Yeah, thankfully he got me admitted, and the next about ten days I was in there, and they were just confused what was going on, and I kept getting sicker and sicker to the point I wasn't eating anything. Um, they did a colonoscopy, you know, didn't really find much, just some, yeah. And so at one point, actually, a nurse that I that's uh, married to my cousin, mm-hmm. she came into my room, and she goes, "You need to get to UW." Because I, you know, this is during COVID, so I haven't seen anybody for 10 days, right? Like, right. just phone calls. And she came in, and she's like, if you were my husband, I'd have you at UW. And I said, okay. So the next time a nurse came in, I was like, I want to go to UW. And they were cool about it. They were just like, okay. And so mm. I hopped in an old ambulance, which, you know, not like the nice air ride smooth ambulances. Like, they <laughs> put me in on a stretcher in the back of it. Yeah. And it was a rough ride, man. Like... <laughs> And, consider, and considering your condition, yeah, which it was like massive, like internal pain. Yeah, right? it was like the 1980s ambulance, like just the because it wasn't an emergency transport. It was right. a, so got down there, and I think the second night I was there, I was in a lot of pain. I mean, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I basically talked to my wife a couple times a day, and other than that, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was just kind Could of. Could she come down and be with you no, at all? No. Because this was like at the height of COVID. She saw me. Stuff. Yeah, she saw me when I came out um, to get in that old ambulance. She was able to say hi to me outside, mm-hmm. and I love you and whatever. And I, that's it. Yeah. What were you thinking at that point? You have to be wondering, like, yeah, what am I going to see you again? Kind of thing. I, yeah, I, I think, were you scared? I think at that point I wasn't that scared yet. A little later I was, but I was yeah. kind of like I'm pretty been a pretty healthy person. Yeah. And I'm just kind of like, what's, what's going on, you know? And so I got down there. I remember, you know, thinking about UW as this great hospital. I've ne- I'd never been in there or visited yeah. anybody or anything. And I was in this room that was like, I swear it hasn't been remodeled since the 70s. <laughs> and there's like a fan on the wall, like no AC. And I'm just like, oh, Bellingham was way better, <laughs> like the comfort level anyways. 
and that's just one wing. I ended up yeah. being in a lot of different spots in that hospital, but um, so that first night I didn't sleep. I was in a lot of pain. It was hot. And uh, the second night they came in and they said, we're going to do another CAT scan. And kind of like, well, I've had five CAT scans. Like you know, how much more radiation can I handle? Right? Like, okay. Yeah. And we just want to make sure. So I'd had all those CAT scans done in, in Bellingham. So went and did one and they come in my room and they're like, you're going into emergency surgery tonight. And I'm like, for what? And I had a hole in my large intestine and it was perforated bowel. That's what they call it, I guess. And mm -hmm. um, so my feces were leaking out inside of my body. And so. What causes that? Well, that's, they had, at that point they hadn't figured it out. Mm -hmm. um, but not good. They knew that I had extremely high eosinophils, which is a type of white blood cell that uh, like, is like a it's like the allergy blood cell like gets really high when it's um, when you have an allergic reaction mm -hmm. and they weren't sure why um but so i called my wife and i said they're putting me into surgery and they told me she could come down so she came down and she was with me for about three hours before i went under because i had to get i was on warfarin so my um, INR level, which is the blood thickness, mm -hmm. was too high. So they're they giving take me you off to that before they cut you open. So they're giving me vitamin K to right thicken your blood. Yeah. So I'm just sitting waiting, and then they had to do COVID tests and all that crap before I could go into surgery. So she got down there, and um, yeah, I went into surgery that night, and I was under for 24 hours under the uh, sleep for 24 hours. How long were you in surgery for? I think they did like six or seven hours initially. And then um, they didn't close me up because they wanted to see if some of the tissue in my intestines would um, improve. Mm -hmm. And so then later they did another like, I don't know, five or six hours. But like, so there was a time period where I was out. Unbelievable. Yeah. Pretty crazy. And I actually remember, like, I remember like just waking up and like feeling like I had a rope down my throat, which was a ventilator, right? Like, right. and I'm just kind of like, I didn't, I didn't open my eyes, but I'm just kind of like, what the heck is in my throat, you know? Yeah. And I uh, had these, um, my arms were locked down and I'm trying to get them loose. And there was one that was Velcro and I got mm -hmm. it loose and I just kind of started waving. And then the nurse is like, are you in pain? And I'm like, I just kind of nodded. And then I was out and that happened three times. So I'm assuming that's when I was like laying there in between the, yeah, the surgery. Probably like we'll give him a bit more if he's aware right. and in pain. Yeah, but I yeah I didn't know what was down my throat or I mean I just like. So what did they find? So what woke, was going on in there? Uh, Hyperenosinophilic syndrome. What the heck is that? It's just elevated eosinophils that it's basically your immune system is just going crazy to the point that all your capillaries and blood vessels are clotting. So like your so, body is attacking itself. Yeah. And so they couldn't, they said something triggered it. Like a virus could trigger it or just a food or whatever yeah. allergic reaction or whatever, but they were never able to t figure out what triggered it. So they used prednisone, 80 milligrams of prednisone daily to, suppress my immune system um initially so yeah i woke up in icu on a you know a iv food uh, i what do they call it i i can't remember but 
yeah, so I couldn't eat, I couldn't drink water because I, I had an NG tube, so a tube that went up my nose, down my throat, pretty uncomfortable. Yep. I had lost 60 pounds in a month. And yeah. And so then there was still a lot of questions, right, at that point. So, um, but it was that moment it, that they had saved your life, basically. Right. Yeah. If they hadn't have done that then, what would have happened? Yeah, I'd have been dead. Yeah. Really? Yeah. They, they told me that if I would have stayed two or three more days in Bellingham, I would have been dead. So I was lucky I went down there. So, but the surgery like stopped that? You were okay then? They knew you were going to make it then? Mm. Or was it still up in the air? I, this, I had two doctors that did the surgery. So the first one did the initial eight hours and then another one finished it up. And he came in and he goes, you know, in 30 years I've been doing this. I've never seen someone look so good coming out of that. It's what you just went through. And I'm like, man, I don't feel very good. You know, like, wow. But there was a lot of, I mean, that wasn't the end of it. So I ended up, I w I'm trying to think if I was in the hospital a total of like eight or nine weeks. Um, I couldn't walk. So I had to, you know, I'll send them like walking with a walker one day was like a big accomplishment. Right. Yeah. Um, couldn't even hold my toothbrush. Like, stand up without almost passing out and uh just because you were that weak yeah i just lost every bit of muscle and fat i had and i was just looked like a refugee of some sort so what were the conversations with your wife at that time when it was still up in the air and they had done surgery and you didn't know what was going on um just well, a lot of i love you's and and um yeah she's a pretty strong person i mean she stronger than i am so yeah it was it was it i was, just can't imagine especially in the middle of covid when right. it's like you can't even really be together the world already feels like it's going crazy mm -hmm. and then to be facing death right i mean there was times where i was crabby because i was just in pain yeah and so i was short with her and yeah whatever else and i think that was hard for her to deal with i mean yeah. that's the last way you want to you know maybe it's the last time talking to your husband right and he's in a bad mood right but yeah yeah it was it was crazy and then i ended up finally getting out of there and then about two weeks later i had to go back in because i had an abscess in my abdomen so they cut you open again they just stuck in a drain so they mm. they had to do a procedure but it, i had to be in another like i think i was in there another eight days <laughs> and painful just yeah and, and I'm on a, I woke up with an elostomy bag. So now, yeah. So like all those things were pretty overwhelming. A lot of, no pun intended, crap to deal with. Exactly. Brutal. Mm -hmm. So what's the recovery process been like? Like when were you able to get back to the farm? That's what you do. Like you eat, breathe, sleep farming. Yeah. Um, there were, I would say even when I was in the hospital, like I wasn't, I think you're, your mind and your body knows you're in danger. And like, I just didn't even care like about mm. the farm, like thought more about my family than, yeah. than the farm. And, um, yeah, I was just like, just trying to, I had enough to deal with right mentally, physically. Um, but yeah, I got back out, like I was out walking and stuff. Like when we did first cutting, which it would have been in late May. Um, but just very weak. Like mm -hmm. I remember I was like trying to couple a garden hose together um, on one of our water troughs out in the field and my wife had to hold one end and I was just like shaking could barely like just like simple things that you don't yeah. think about being hard um, it was a long process and then I was getting 
weaned off the prednisone so i would have withdrawals and sweats and i get i still get i hit walls during the day i just get tired yeah um but i'm on a biological shot um that controls these anisinophils so i get it every eight weeks i'm totally off the prednisone and yeah they don't know if i need it even right but like it's not worth the risk to right exactly they don't know if it would come back or you don't want to go through that again no and then so this november the ninth i have a surgery to reconnect my intestines so i'm going bagless like so i bet you're pumped about that yeah, that's pretty exciting so even though surgery is not fun no and that's another eight to ten weeks of laying around oh man because i couldn't lift more than eight pounds for or they said i couldn't lift more than eight pounds for like it was eight weeks and then not more than 30 for 12. eight yeah, pounds is a gallon that. of milk right so like Try to do that on a dairy farm right so i probably cheated a little bit on that yeah. but i didn't but if they just like cut you open that has to heal otherwise it's gonna pop back open. yeah hernias and whatever so you don't want to be back in for that no i tried to do my best yeah. but how did the farm stay going who, who um, kept things rolling uh well i have an amazing employee first of all he marcos he he's just he's just the best like he stepped up to the plate and did a lot of stuff. And then my, my dad mm -hmm. um, and a bunch of friends of mine and neighbors. And yeah, that was probably like, it was, I don't know, was, if any good came out of this, like for me to, to realize like who has your back, like when you're down. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, a lot of people, there, it was like overwhelming, I think for my dad, like people were calling wanting to help. And he's like, well, like, I don't, I already have like 10 people helping out. Like we don't need any more. So um, yeah, that was pretty cool. That's interesting because on this podcast, I've heard the opposite thing where it was your dad the calling to help others. I think it was Larry Stapp talking yeah. about when his son Mark passed right. and your dad calling him and coming out and just, I don't remember what cutting it was, but they just took care of it, him and some neighbors and stuff. Yeah, I remember that. I didn't know my dad had done that, but... Larry had texted me when I was pretty much laying on the couch watching Netflix there for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, he had told me that. So that's that's pretty cool. I didn't know he had organized that. I remember it happening yeah. when everybody went out and mowed his, and chopped his grass. And I think a couple of us kids went out and helped cover the bunker and stuff, but I don't. That's just the way in this community, though. Right. Like, people are just going to step up and get yeah. it done. And sometimes, like, there's days, like, you're, like, Linden, like you know like <laughs> right it's annoying like it's like a who's uh who's better your boots been under kind of town you know what i mean but yeah. like when it comes down to it like yep yeah it's there's the good and the bad right right, right. it's a small town stuff right but exactly so talk about your farm how how big is your farm what's it all about you do organic mm -hmm. dairying mm -hmm. what does that mean um so i farm my this is my dad's farm i rent i don't own any real estate so okay my dad has 127 acres here. Um, about 75 of it is actual farmland or pasture land, mm. and the rest is woods and wetlands. Mm. And uh, we have a crep project. And I probably farm like around 250 total acres, rented yeah. other acres. By crep project, what's, what is that? That's like a salmon restoration project. Mm. In the middle of our farm, there's a dip, and it's all peat ground, and it was hard to farm um couldn't get on it till june usually and 
We used to pasture the dry cows and heifers in it. And um, my dad got offered good money to put it into a pretty much a little wildlife preserve, I guess you would say. So, Well, and it makes sense, right? Right. He always thought he could, you know, buy a couple loads of hay with the money he he, of nice hay, right? right? Better hay than that land produced with the money he got f- for right. uh, the crep project. And how many head of cows do you milk? Oh, yeah, tell me about your herd. So I milk about uh, milking about ninety-five cows right now, um, and it varies between ninety and a little over a hundred. And I ship to Organic Valley. Um, yeah, I sw- well, at one point I was milking here and the neighbor's place. Um, and it started off, I was actually shipping milk to Twinbrook Creamery at the neighbors. Mm-hmm. And that didn't work out for several different reasons. And that ground had been certified organic before. And so I was able to get it certified and get on with Organic Valley there. And so then I was milking organic cows there and conventional cows here at home. Mm-hmm. And um, then I think well, that was in 2016. And so like three years ago now, I sold the conventional cows and brought the organic cows home and just milk organic cows. So what does that mean? Organic cows? What does it take to be able to call yourself that? Well, number one, you got to graze, right? So we have to have over 30% of our dry matter intakes from our cows come from fresh pasture. So, um, that's something I've always done. I grew up doing uh, rotational grazing. My dad was kind of on the cutting edge of like New Zealand style grazing. So that, wasn't much of a transition for me at all. Um, we can't use any hormones to, for heats or reproductively. All our grain that we buy is certified organic, which is a little more expensive. Yeah. Um, fly control, everything has to pretty much be all natural, right? No GMOs, all that good stuff. So, um, How hard is that to do to make those changes and to make it work? Um, I guess there, there's a learning curve, but for me, I've always kind of been, I don't know, like I got a buddy who says I'm just a pair of Jesus sandals away from being a complete hippie, right? Like, so I don't know. I like to, I like different things. Like we already were using uh, tree swallow boxes as uh, nesting boxes to bring tree swallows in for fly control, mm. like when I was conventional. So I, I always was like messing around. So with that's like the, an organ, you attract a birds and right, they like eat the flies if and, you i don't know i'm kind of a wildlife junkie so yeah um the swallows that have the white bellies you'll see them on the power line sometimes yeah. there used to be a lot more of them and with you know there's less woodlands around and whatever else and there there's just not as many of them and so we put up my dad and i put up like 10 boxes the first year and they were all full and so then we just kept like hammering out these boxes and like they're if you go out there they're on like every other fence post you face them to the southwest Mm. and we were i remember my dad was like drilling one up and there's like swallows going in it like as he was like this was a couple years after we'd had a few because like all these swallows Swallows are in a housing crisis they're right um, (laughs) and they they open up real estate as quick as they can get it they had had too many kids the last couple years so (laughs) Now they're just everywhere. Like I, what I didn't know is that those do that. Those help with flight control. Yeah, like the well, the barn swallows. You know, the orange-bellied ones that yeah, you know, usually nest in your garage over your car. Yeah, like same thing. They just swoop around and eat. I think they eat like I can't remember what it is, but it's like five times their body weight in insects a day or something like that. So <laughs> if you think about that, so if you have yeah. you know a thousand swallows flying around, they eat a lot of bugs, and so 
if you watch my cows on pasture, the swallows are just flying under, you know, yeah. I call them my fly dive bomb crew. So that's awesome. So I've always been into kind of stuff like that. So, yeah. um, I think when I started organic, I never wanted to go organic. I never believed in it. I was kind of like, uh, I had organic Valley approach me several times about going organic and I was kind of resistant to it. Um, basically hard economic times brought me to that point. Yeah. And so I started over there and I thought, well, if I have a sick cow, I can treat it with antibiotic or bring it home and treat it with antibiotics. Well, because you had an organic and not also a right. conventional. And that was my justification for, right. Well, for, cause that's the hard part is you want to treat a sick cow and give them antibiotics just like a human would, but there are zero antibiotics allowed. Right in organic dairying right so that was my like first like okay that's how i'll do it right and after like two years i had moved like three cows so i was like well is it really worth it to be milking my 120 cows here at a loss yeah to move three cows a year no so i and then i had learned a lot since then like organic farm dairy farming to me is about prevention of disease, not treatment, and right. which you don't make money treating disease anyways or sickness, right? right? It's all about prevention. So you have to be proactive um, about culling too. Like if I have a cow that I think is gonna be a health problem or have a health problem, she goes to beef before that happens. And then what you end up doing is you like, you cultivate natural selection. And so like if I have a cow that won't breed and I'm like, I had to give her an estrimate shot to get her to come and heat. But why would I want a daughter just like her, right? Mm -hmm. Like I want cows that are going to breed when, mm -hmm. when I breed them. So that's a big part of it. So like proactive culling, and then you end up just having a healthier herd. And you end up, I think health is very, gen health is genetic and environmental, right? Oh. So you try to get, um, keep calves out of your best cows, problem-free cows and keep a clean environment and it's actually worked out way better than milking conventional cows for me so and it's really starting to rain out there yep the fall rains have finally showed up yep today is the day yep good Crazy. time to sit down for a podcast right <laughs> exactly so for you going organic was pretty natural even though you hadn't wanted to do it in the past it was pretty natural and now you're like this is great like you're into yeah, it yeah i'm gung-ho about it like yeah there's this is it is it worth it? Like, because you go to the store, you're definitely going to pay quite a bit more for organic milk at the store. But does that translate to you? Do you make enough to make those changes pay? If that makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I get paid quite a bit more. I mean, that's what needs to happen for the system to right. work. And the market stability, right? I know our, our milk price varies um, seasonally. But I know what it's going to do. Now, we took a pay cut like three or four years ago where we actually took a pretty big hit. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't returned to us yet. But since then, it's been very consistent. So you kind of know what you're going to get. And that's, that's a big part of it because... Why is it like that? Why, why is or the organic market so much more stable than the conventional? Um, probably just less people doing it. Yeah. Um, organic Valley has a quota system. So... You know, we can't yeah. ship more than what our quota is. Right. 
Um, uh, Dairy Gold does though too, right? right? Yeah, in the recent years they've. But Organic Valley is like the biggest organic dairy uh, processor co-op in, in the country, right? So, so it they, is a cooperative. It is a cooperative, yeah. So there's some like newcomer, like there's a big dairy, um, Aurora Dairy, organic dairy. Like there's been more stuff popping up. So there's more and more competition in the marketplace. And that's probably why we had to take our pay cut yeah. um, a few years ago. Hope to get it back soon, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, for me, it wasn't this huge, like almost everything I, like, I, I don't do a lot of stuff different. I mean, I'm always learning, but, um, yeah, like, it's not like I went from a, a confinement TMR, you know, just like, yeah, like hardcore full convention. Right, I think that'd be a lot, a lot harder yeah. transition. Right. Cause pasturing in itself has a learning curve. I remember my dad said he, he. One day he was like in the barn and he's like, all I do is scrape manure and milk cows. And he just like let the cows out hmm. and they were Holsteins. And he said like that first couple years, he got like 40 pounds of milk. Like just, it was just a learning curve. Right. Like, right. And then we started, you know, intensive grazing and yeah. What does that mean? Intensive grazing? Like how does it actually work? Um, so it depends on the uh, time of year, but early on in the year, I'll, I'll try to move um, the cows every 12 hours, every milking, when the grass is just really growing. So, like, in, what, March? Um, I April? usually I usually don't get them out till late April. It depends on the year. There's times they've been out in March, but not very often. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the grass to get going a little bit um, because sometimes if, and I've let them out earlier, but you let them out and they eat everything, and then you get, like, this kind of weather for... You yeah. know, 10 days and then like you got to bring them back in. And so I've always liked to wait till late April, early May. Because if they go tromping around in a grass field and it's raining out, like we hear the rain on the tin right now yep. in the shop here, they're just going to make a muck hole, right? They're right. Gonna... And then your photosynthesis is like when it's like this slows way down. So your regrowth is so... Mm. Uh, so much slower so i'll move them every 12 hours early and then i kind of transition slowly into a daily move because the grass will start to slow down right mm-hmm. and so i use um temporary fencing they're all on reels these gallagher fencing reels and i do it that way because um some people do paddocks like they'll do right like, okay this 2.2 acre paddock and whatever else mm-hmm. well i feel that the grass is so different at um different stages that you can't lock yourself into 2.2 acres because 2.2 acres in july might mean six hours of grazing right and in may it might equal you know 12 hours of grazing or 24 hours of grazing right Right. so like i use these um pigtail posts and i'm out there just moving fence moving your fence all the time so the cows are eating different parts of your grass right and, and I like, what, what, what does that do for the cows and what does that do for the grass? Um, so the grass stops growing like for three or four days every time it's cut or um, grazed off. Mm-hmm. So if your animal's just grazing and grazing and grazing or every four days grazing the same blade of grass or five days, like every time you're just stunting it. So it increases your your yield just tremendously. So they can eat it down and then you get off of that yep. grass so it can be undisturbed for a while. And mm-hmm. and so, and then they're also getting the best quality of fresh feed, right? Um, you don't want it too mature. You don't want it 
too young and so that's kind of a it's kind of an art i think it's more of an art than a science yeah um i've been moving cows since i was like 12 my dad kind of you know my dad always had a, a day job so yeah. um yeah i kind of yeah I, talk about your your background so your dad was a dairy farmer as well but like you said he had a day job mm-hmm. how, what, what did you grow up around what what was he doing what what did his dairy look like back in the day when you were 12 learning to move cows um early on i just remember him milking all the time and you know um milking with him late nights in the barn and and then i don't know when but i don't know when he got his day job but he was always dabbling in something so like this shop used to be full of grass seed <laughs> um he was dealing grass seed out of here with his brother like it was i remember it was to the to the trusses full of grass seed like we couldn't park anything in here and um his brother passed away and they were doing construction in that and that kind of fizzled when his brother passed away and he he um was on the farm for a while i think and then he got a job with Ellen boss agronomy and you know he he's kind of a self-made guy like he didn't finish college but he went and became an agronomist and now he's a yeah. certified crop advisor and and so he was yeah he would be in the, the summer he would be on the phone or gone all the time and you know and then he would milk on saturdays because our our hired man lived in the mobile home here for like 13 or 14 years um had saturdays off so that was his day off so. and that was our work day too you know like <laughs> hat off school and like we yep. knew there was something going on and we were gonna i was gonna be milking with my dad or whatever yeah and yeah and then as i got older i did a lot of milking um he would always say hey can you start milking for me and he might as well just said can you milk for me because he'd come home like when i had five cows left and i'd be like i thought i was just gonna start and like <laughs> oh yeah i got busy you know but i know he's a busy guy and and yeah. uh yeah what about his dad what, what's your family heritage going back generations um i pretty much have dairy farmers on every like side of me so um like my my grandpa just quit on my mom's side just quit farming he's still farming but you know he sold yeah. the cows what a year ago so and then my um mom's mom's dad farmed over on benson road where ray stite farmed yeah uh, and so yeah just dairy farmers everywhere okay. so then my grand my grandpa moved here i think in 1956 from um he actually farmed on central road mm. um before this you'd have to if my dad was here he'd probably be like no yeah. it was 1954 <laughs> or whatever but in the 50s yeah so he Close moved enough. moved here he was a world war ii veteran mm. and so he kind of got a late start in life after the war and everything yeah. and um yeah he came out here and bought this place from ernie crandall and there was three farms on this road there was the kings the hallbergs and the groons and i my grandma said that all her friends were like i can't believe you're moving out there with that man like that's just way out in the boondocks you know like it's <laughs> all woods and in the hills up here so yeah yeah and so yeah he he was a cattle dealer and milked cows and yeah but dairy roots way back and yeah. even before him um to netherlands maybe do his, you know his dad farmed in or his, no his dad he he grew up in minnesota so mm. i i'm not sure if his dad i think he was a butcher or something 
I can't remember. But my grandma, my grandma Groon, my dad's mom, uh, grew up on a dairy in the Netherlands. So, yeah. It does go yeah. back to the old country. Right. So when, when did you have the awareness that you wanted to do this? That you wanted to mm. continue the family legacy of dairy farming? Um, I think early on I did. And then you get to that point where you're a teenager and like there's so much more exciting things like girls and <laughs> being able to do stuff. Um, so there was a time there where I was, I'd much rather be doing something else. Yeah. Um, and then I got, you know, my first real job, I guess I worked, I worked on some dairy farms, but then I worked at Elmas agronomy, uh, driving crop sprayer. Mm-hmm. And then I think about then I kind of realized I was like, I kind of miss the farm now that I have to work every day. Like, yeah and make a living. Um, and then I, I worked for my dad for a couple of years. Um, and this is after, in between going to school in Minnesota. I, I oh, yeah, where'd you go to school? Ridgewater College. It's in okay. Wilmer, Minnesota. They had a two-year ag program. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I spent some time out there, worked on some dairies out there. And nice. Yeah. And came back here and you were, you know, basically Well, it was doing kind of a, like, my dad called me and he's like, so his employee of 13 years, um, I think they just had enough of each other. Like, <laughs> yeah, he told them to do something and, and he, he said, no, and my dad's like, what? <laughs> he's like, no. And he's like, well, you're fired. And he was like, no, I quit. <laughs> and, and he laughed and like, I think they both regret it. So he came yeah. back here like a few years ago and he was just like, missed the farm. Right. Yeah. Like he grew his kids grew up here and stuff. But after that, my dad had a hard time finding help and he had his day job and he called me, he sold most of his cows, but he always had this problem whether he had way too many heifers. So like he had sold pretty much the dairy herd while I was in college. All of a sudden he was milking like 60 cows again. And he was just like, you know, it was springtime and he called me and he's like, Hey, I'm selling these cows. And like, so if you're not going to come back and farm, these cows are leaving. Well, that kind of, I was like big into the registered Jersey Mm. seen like i loved cows and like that kind of was like well what does that mean registered jersey uh just purebred registered cattle i did a lot of showing Mm. um i was really into that and so it's pretty attached to some of those cows so he's like well if you're not you know if you can't come up with the money to buy these cows by june one then they're gone so i applied for an fsa loan (laughs) and i got it surprisingly (laughs) and yeah I bought I 60 just, cows and some heifers and started renting the dairy. So what did your dad since. say at that time? Did he think that you were going to pull it off or what, did you surprise him? Um, I don't know. There's days. I think he still doesn't think I'm going to pull it off, but <laughs> I, I, no, I think <laughs> this I, is how Dutch fathers right. are. How do I know? I have one. <laughs> right. <laughs> Same thing. He was, I don't know. He was encouraging. I get like early on, he was very hands-on and I didn't know what it, like I remember running in my farm and my egg business classes, like we had this computer program called FinPack that would do these cash flows and and we had to do a FinPack on our home farm or a farm we knew. Yeah. And I'm like, ah I just feel like I don't know how you don't make you know, don't make much money, you know. I was just had it all Yeah. You know, and he's like idealistic and then, right. and and then like, I got it's home it's harder than you think. And <laughs> I was kind of a hot mess for quite a while, like just my organization and running in circles because you yeah. know how it works but 
he always had dad to ask, right? Like, yep. or dad there to do this, or he was the... So he basically said, hey, it's your baby now, and he was doing his day job and other stuff, and it was yeah, your baby. He, he always said he would come yell at me in the, in the morning when I was milking just to get me fired up, and then he'd leave. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, Sounds like a Dutch dad thing to yeah, do. Yeah, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he... And then as things went on, he just got more and more hands off. I mean, he still helps me a lot, but um, like as far as cows, like he trusts me with the cows and leaves me alone for the most part. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's kind of, that was 08. I bought the cows in June of 08 and milk price was good. Mm -hmm. And I thought this is easy. And then 09 happened and I was getting like 12 bucks a hundred weight, right? And um, lost a lot of money in 09. And then, uh, yeah. How did, how did you sense. survive? What do you, what do you have to do to survive something like that when you're just starting and you don't have that like base to draw on? Um, I never left. Like I, like it's kind of like if I went to town, I was going to spend money, right? Like every time you drive into town, you're going to spend money either on gas or you stop somewhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I was like super frugal. Yeah. Yep. For quite a while there, I've gotten less frugal as I have more kids and like, you know, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, I just stayed home and milked my cows. Yeah, talk about your family. You've got kids out here on the farm. They help with the cows and everything too? Yeah, so um, I'm on my second marriage. I got married um, not uh, two Augusts ago, mm -hmm. and she had three kids, and we had two of our own. To get, we have two of our own together now, and I had one original. So we have six kids in the house. Busy, busy. Yeah, and so, yeah. It's it's crazy, and you just, they're doing they're doing uh, internet schooling right now. Oh boy, that's why I'm so glad to be out of the yeah. house. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and if I'm right, your wife was pregnant when you were going through this whole health ordeal right. that you yep. had. Yep. So oh, man, can't imagine what was going through her mind. Yeah, my mind too. I was just like I'm gonna like as things weren't going well. It's like I can't I can't leave her with all these kids and yeah. But she did it. Yeah. That's not easy duty. No, she's a pretty strong person. I have two kids, and I, I don't know if I could manage by myself. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine with that many. I mean, everybody says, like, six kids is so hard. I mean, I don't know. Like, the older ones, because they're so spread out, the older ones yeah. are so helpful, right? So, like, change that diaper. Or, you know, <laughs> so it's not that bad, but, yeah. And that's been the story of family farms and dairy farms for, you know, our parents and grandparents and beyond, those are always big families too. And they, everybody kind of pitched in. Right. I mean, the joke was always that it was more people to work on the farm, mm -hmm. but it was also more people to get the house stuff done. And Yep. I, I'm coming into my uh, golden age of labor here pretty soon. So <laughs> Yeah, you'll have lots of yeah. hired help, a.k.a. kids. Right, exactly. Send out and get all your work done That's for good you. for them. <laughs> so what do you think the future holds for you? You want to see your kids continue it on? I'd like to see them do that. I don't, I don't know if they will. I doubt it, but um, I'm not going to discourage it. Yeah. Some people are like, oh, I don't want my, yeah. you know, but I think that's a bad attitude. I think. Yeah. Um, Some I'd, people are like, no, my kids have to take carry on the farm. Yeah. No, that's uh, not like the either. opposite. No. Yeah. So I, yeah, I hope so. Um, but we'll see. I mean, my stepkids, they're, they are coming into this kind of like, it was kind of a shock, right? Like, my wife's oldest, Ryan's 
came, come, came here when he was 17, right? And like all of a sudden he has to what? He has to work. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't think he's going to be uh, coming back. You yeah. know what I mean? And, yeah. and the younger ones are starting to really enjoy it. But yeah. Um, yeah. And then my daughter Kenya is really into animals, but she likes horses. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see. What do you think the, I mean, since you're an organic guy and you really like embrace that, mm -hmm. what do you think the future of that is? Is that the, the way of the future for producing food, for producing dairy? Mm, good question. Um, it's my future. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, you don't see yourself going back. No, I don't, I don't think it will go away and I think it'll continue to grow, but, um, I'm not sure if it would be the only way of, I don't think yeah. that'll ever happen, but. Um, yeah, you, your guess is as good as mine, but, yeah. um, I enjoy it and I believe in what I do. I'm not going to run anybody else down for what they do or believe in, but I would, I switched for the milk check totally. Right. Um, but as I got into it, I just, it's kind of like you're farming w like with nature, not a, like you're not fighting nature. Right. And that's how, like, I'm kind of a nature guy. Like, so, yeah. So that's kind of your perspective on sustainability to bring in the buzzword yeah the buzzword um yeah i guess for me yeah i mean it's not for everybody but yeah i enjoy it and i believe in what i do and and yeah yeah you talked to earlier about you know converting some land back to like wildlife habitat and different things like that sounds like environmental protection and sustainability are pretty important to you and your family's value system yeah farming here yeah and i think most farmers feel that way i mean there's a lot of those salmon restoration crap projects around stream buffers and all that kind of stuff so um yeah so what would you tell folks you know there's controversy about dairy right mm -hmm. can i really trust dairy and you know some people have more trust say for organic dairy like mm -hmm. you do some people think all dairy is bad mm -hmm. what do you say to that since you're on the ground doing it like, are those concerns valid? What is the right thing? Mm, well, milk is, drinking milk is biblical, you know. <laughs> they didn't call it, they call it the land of milk and honey. Yeah, they didn't, true. you know, like, so. It's true. I think it's, it's been a source of protein and nutrition for, since the beginning of time. Um, I think like, like veganism is a North American problem, like a North American thing. Like where else in the world? It's because we have too much money. Mm. Right. Like somewhere else you might be a vegan, but it's not by choice. Like, right. You know, you're hoping that you're going to have some, some meat once a month or, mm -hmm. or whatever. So I think that's just with money comes these weird ideas. It's just like, you see like, um, these young celebrities, right. They start off normal and then they kind of go wacko at like 30 <laughs> years old and kind of go off. The, the money just, and power goes yeah, to their just, head. It's not natural. Right. And yeah. so, um, yeah, dairy is not scary at all. It's, um, you're, we're not going to change any vegans minds, right? Like the, they have to change. You don't change anybody's mind period on anything. So they have to just see what it is, what you do. And if they agree with it and are down with it, then they are. And if they aren't, they, they aren't like, you don't change people's minds. So all you can do is kind of let them in on what you do. So, and people like i think if you if you think the same you did 10 years ago about everything 
that's a bad sign because it means you're not learning, right? So um, it's okay, you know, to change your pers- or your how you feel about something. Hundred yeah. percent. Um, and so some of these people they change. I, I have a buddy I talked to the other day. He married a vegan, or mm-hmm. she was a vegan, and he actually used to raise. We used to do pastured chickens out here, mm-hmm. and he was uh, doing that with my dad at that at that time. And she came out and saw how we were doing the whole thing. And she was like, oh, I'm okay with that. But she had, she had read some book when she was 12. He said that, you know, some veganism book, I guess. And that's how she had... Uh, Something that portrayed farming as... Right. And I think she's, she's still like... Harmful. She, like they buy a half a bee from us every year. And um, she's very like into organic and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's not a vegan yeah. so anymore. So people change and yeah. all you can do is open their eyes to what you do and what they think of it is, is their deal. So thanks for having me out to the shop. No problem. Anytime. I appreciate it. Listen to the rain come down out there. Not too much to do out in the field at this moment. Nope. So it worked out well. And uh, my favorite place to do an interview is in a real shop. It even smells like a real shop. In yeah. There. A little bit of oil and diesel and mm-hmm. dirt and manure and all the good stuff on yep. a real dairy shop. That's right. Where you can't find any tool you need. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. If you want to see what it looks like where Corby and I recorded that interview in his farm shop, you can check out the video. It's on YouTube. Just search up Real Food, Real People on YouTube. You can check it out on our Facebook page as well, at rfrp.podcast on Facebook is our handle, technically. I think you just search anyway. I mean, that's how everybody finds everything these days, right? <laughs> and also on Instagram and Twitter, uh, links to the, all of our content and our website, realfoodrealpeople.org, is all available um, you could just, like we mentioned a couple of times, you could hear the rain coming down. It was kind of the first day, big day of fall rains last week when we had that conversation. You can't see the rain in the video, but you can see the shop and uh, what we're talking about uh, in the background. We sure appreciate your support. We sure appreciate you subscribing uh, to listen to the podcast on your favorite platform, uh, subscribing on YouTube to make sure you don't miss any videos and make sure to follow and share our content on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. The Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. Find them online at savefamilyfarming.org. And by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture, and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.